The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Appreciate the opportunity of being with you this today, uh, this morning, and to speak about the matters that we're concerned with. I'm uh, <clears throat> assuming that everybody got a the single-page handout that um, will give you a little map of how we want to proceed in my time with you uh, this morning. Now, if you have that uh, handout. You'll see from the title that what I want to do in this session is to answer the question, what is the Bible? Now, you might be wondering uh, about that. Uh, Do we really need to spend time answering that question, Uh, particularly after what we were considering last night? And perhaps you might be thinking even more basically, uh, of course we know what the Bible is. We're evangelical believers. The Bible is God's Word. So why uh, should we answer that question? Why don't we, for instance, move on and consider some aspect of the Bible's teaching, uh, how its authority is to function in our lives in one way or another? Well, if you have that reaction this morning, I'd like to ask you to consider now with me that there may be more involved in here in my raising the question than might at first meet the eye. Um, That there's a need for us together to look at that question. Uh, No matter how much we might think we know the answer to it, if we are going to be truly knowledgeable in the answer uh, that we give, and if we're going to be helpful to others in that uh, conviction. Uh, So in that regard, consider this statistic now, this sobering statistic. Uh, This is from uh, the latest uh, 2008 national survey by the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life, uh, interviewing a wide range of those who identify themselves as Christians, and among them, uh, one group uh, is, one group addressed is evangelical Protestants. In other words, if the word evangelical means anything, of those who believe that the Bible is the Word of God. Well, to this group, uh, this question was put. Uh, Do many religions lead to eternal life? And this is the statistic. Of that group of evangelical Christians, 47% take the view that many religions can lead to eternal life. And within that group, Uh, there were over 70% who identified one or more non-Christian religions that lead to eternal life. The choices they were given were Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, and even atheists, those who have no religious faith. Now, what are we to make of these statistics? Well, however else we might interpret them, uh, assuming their accuracy... And assuming also, as I I must with you this morning, and I'm confident I can, that the Bible is clear that Christ is the only way of salvation, that there is none other name given um, uh, under heaven among men whereby we are to be saved in the name of Jesus, uh, given those assumptions, then we're left with this inescapable conclusion. These self-identified evangelicals who by definition, whatever else the t- term means, claim to, be, to have a high view of the Bible, either disregard or are ignorant of what the Bible is, of its authority, and what it clearly teaches. In fact, whatever they may say, they don't have a very high or accurate view of the Bible. And further, we might note here, uh, these statistics uh, tie in with uh, matters that were brought up uh, last evening. 
and that is the present situation uh, increasingly with, among uh, evangelical and even uh, reformed uh, church circles where uh, there are disputes surrounding the doctrine of Scripture, what a basic view of the Bible is, uh, disputes that we would not have imagined would be here uh, even just a little while ago. Now, let me go on then uh, and say next that we need to be very clear about what is at stake in this debate. And what is at stake is the gospel, nothing less than the gospel itself. At the heart of this growing evangelical confusion, we might even say turmoil, at, this, at the heart of this confusion about the Bible, nothing less than our possession of the gospel is in danger. Now you might wonder, how is that? That, seems, that may seem to be a, a fairly strong statement. Well, look at it this way. Look at it from the vantage point of faith in Christ. And you must recognize then that a right understanding, a right understanding of what the Bible is, is a normal, natural component of saving faith. Jesus says, John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice. And that voice for us, for the church today, is in Scripture. Now it's true that a sound view of the Bible, particularly a fully worked out doctrine of Scripture, is not essential to saving faith. It's true, as some could point out. That is not a book. It's not believing in a book, but believing in a person that saves us. And certainly people can be confused about what the Bible is and still have heard the gospel and believe it and be trusting in Christ. But that situation is an abnormal one. And we must be uh, recognize this then, where faith is uncertain about what the Bible is, to that extent, it is disturbed, impaired, and it will be uncertain. So the point you see that I'm wanting to underline here, first of all, is that Scripture and the Gospel of Christ stand or fall together. If we would if we did not have Scripture, we would not have a saving knowledge of Christ. And because, and only as we do have Scripture, do we have that saving knowledge. Only there in Scripture do we hear the voice of our Good Shepherd so that we can follow Him. And I could just point out in this connection, it's hardly by accident that in the Reformation's recapturing of the Gospel, Scriptura sola, Scripture alone, became one of its watchwords. Those Reformation solas, in particular, Christ alone, depend on Scripture alone. Sound views of the Bible, what the Bible is, and sound views of the Gospel go together. They stand or fall together. And where unsound views of the Bible enter the church, unsound views of the Gospel are soon to follow and the eventual loss of the gospel sooner or later. So what I'm wanting to accent here is only as the church contends for the gospel and the things that necessarily pertain to the gospel, like scripture, only then will we possess the gospel. Only as we wrestle for the truth of these things of the gospel will we retain the blessings of the gospel. And this is a wrestling that every one of us is to be involved in. Every believer in Jesus Christ. Certainly those who are leaders in the church, pastors and elders and teachers. But all believers have a stake in this concern. We are, as Peter said, to give every believer to be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in us. And that involves holding that hope, what we understand and know about Scripture and what Scripture is. So, uh, you can see then why, why uh, I, the other part of my title there on the sheet is Christ and Scripture. 
it expresses, you see, the, the unbreakable bond that I've been wanting to bring out here, the bond between belonging to Christ and possessing Scripture. And with that bond in mind and what's at stake there, I want to move on now and uh, develop some discussion under uh, addressed to the question, as we could put it, what is the Bible? More specifically, what does the Bible teach about itself? What does the Bible claim about itself? Uh, I want to give something of an overview on these matters. We can't uh, pursue uh, fully, and you'll remember last night that Dr. Truman uh, touched on this uh, important area, and we'll uh, try to go uh, to round out that discussion, go into matters a little bit further as we look into what is sometimes also referred to as the self-witness of the Bible, the self-witness of the Bible. Now that brings me then to a uh, first point on the outline uh, to say something about Revelation, particularly as we focus on Hebrews 1, 1, and 2. There are no doubt a number of ways that we could go about uh, uh, approaching this area of, that we're concerned with, but I want to uh, use these verses at the beginning of Hebrews as a kind of window, uh, providing a perspective on our topic as a whole. Uh, Dave Garner last night uh, drew our attention to them, and now I want to, uh, uh, to use them uh, in this way uh, to look at our topic. Uh, at many times... And in many ways, God, who formerly spoke to our fathers by the prophets in these last days, has spoken to us by his Son. Now this statement, as it stands right at the beginning of the book of Hebrews, you can see, can't you, from reading it, uh, it it's a very sweeping statement. It provides a very large, wide-angle lens. Uh, the writer, of, you, can, you might envision it this way, it's, it's a kind of an uh, umbrella that the writer of Hebrews erects at the very outset of uh, what he has to say in this document. It covers, in a way, everything that he goes on to say as a, as a, in the document as a whole, but as it does that, it provides us with an overall perspective, uh, a large angle vision on God's revelation as a whole. Spe to be more specifically, we have an overall perspective here on the saving self-revelation of God as a whole his revelation in its entirety of himself as not only the creator of heaven and earth, but as he is that also the savior of his people. Uh, in other words, what I'm wanting to remind us of here, that what our writer has in view is what we often refer to as the special revelation of God, his special saving revelation in distinction from the general revelation of God. That is the revelation that God gives of himself in creation, in everything created, our environment, and even ourselves as we are in the image of God. Now as we look at this umbrella statement, uh, we can accent uh, several things, that, uh, and one thing that is immediately apparent about the special saving revelation of God. If you look at this statement, I'll reduce it to its basic elements. Everything can be said in two words. God spoke. God spoke. Uh, look, at, look at the construction. You have two clauses there. In both clauses, God is the subject, and he's the subject of the past tense of the verb spoke. Let's not take this for granted or lightly. This is something truly tremendous. This is not an overwork of that word. This is something that, as Christian believers, uh, we might have heard many times before, but we must not take it for granted. Our God, the Creator God, is a speaking God. Which is to say, to put it negatively, God is not silent, He's not hidden so that uh, somehow we have to find him for ourselves, that we have to try to discover by human effort and ingenuity, reason, intuition, feeling, or whatever. There is no place, you see, from the vision of what is said here in Hebrews 1, 1, and 2, there is no place 
for uh, the kind of do-it-yourself approach to religion or spirituality that is increasingly pervasive today. God, who he is, what he has done, what his will is, what pleases him, what displeases him, is not simply some kind of vague or uncertain mystery, an unknown that we have to try to discover for ourselves individually in my own way. Yes, it's true, God is ultimately incomprehensible. That means we can't know God exhaustively. We can't know God as he knows himself. But you see, we know that. We know that as we know our God and we know him truly. As he is incomprehensible, he is knowable, and we know that because he tells us. God has spoken. Now looking uh, further at this, the, our, the umbrella statement at the beginning of Hebrews, there are three interrelated things, uh, facets uh, that we can note about God speaking. First is this, it has taken place in history. This revelation involves a historical process. Uh, the writer introduces us here to what we could fairly describe as the history of special revelation. The revelation doesn't, you see, come all at one time, but it comes over time, particularly as he contrasts, as he'll make clear uh, as the letter unfolds, God's old covenant revelation and God's new covenant relation. And the writer, as the writer sees it, that history, uh, as it unfolds, and as we'll see more clearly, is a unity. It's, it's, it's a, like an unfolding organism on which God reveals himself as he moves, as it moves from God making promises to God fulfilling those promises. Secondly, notice then that this uh, historically unfolding process, this history of Revelation, involves variety or diversity. That's accented by those words there, uh, single word adverbs in Greek uh, expressed in the prepositional phrases at the beginning of verse 1, at many times, at many times, and in various ways. And that variety we may note just very quickly, we'll uh, come back to this point uh, a little bit further on, it involves multiple prophets. In other words, many human agents or authors, and also diverse modes, various literary types and genre. As you're well aware in the Bible, narrative, poetry, letters, and so on. And by the way, I just point out very quickly how, the, how um, as we will see this applies to Scripture, how the Bible differs then from the holy books of the other world religions. Um, the Quran, for instance, which is uh, claimed to be uh, to come as a series of night visions that were uh, given to Muhammad and he wrote, uh, wrote them down, or the Book of Mormon that was unearthed all at once, these golden tablets in Upper New York State, uh, and were then translated. But the Bible, you see, comes to God's people in an entirely different way as the history of Revelation unfolds. Now as we consider this diversity, we are bound to say at the same time and recognize immediately that this diversity or variety uh, is ultimately the diverse and varied speaking of the one God. The many voices you see, are different expressions of what? Of one voice, of God's voice. God is the subject of all this speaking. It is his word. This means that there is a unity to the variety. The diversity is not somehow contradictory. So often people have that idea, if you have variety, it's somehow going to create tensions and contradictions. But what we're dealing with here in God's unfolding self-revelation it's not something, uh, la something lacking harmony, not a confusion of voices competing uh, to be heard, but it is a unified, coherent, uh, concordant, and harmonious diversity. The many voices, as we said, 
are one voice. At the end of 1 Corinthians 14, uh, Paul, <clears throat> excuse me, Paul tells us that God is not a God of disorder, but of its opposite, peace. And peace, there is certainly uh, to be taken in the sense of the opposite of disorder. It's the peace of order and harmony. And what we must recognize about our God, we recognize about his speech. God's speech is like himself, coherent, unified, harmonious. But then there's a third aspect uh, in the umbrella statement in Hebrews. Uh, last, as I'm giving it, them here, uh, but as you'll hear it, hardly least, the history, the unfolding history of Revelation, the writer says, has ended. It's complete. And notice specifically the wonderful way in which it has reached its conclusion. The history of Revelation finds its endpoint. It reaches its culmination in the Son, in Christ. And it is that speech in the Son, if you will, that Son-speech. That is, the writer says, nothing less than an ultimate conclusion, as he uses it, a last, as he expresses it, a last day's completion. Or if you'll, uh, we use the more technical um, uh, theological term, it is an eschatological conclusion. It brings to an end a climactic in the entire history of special revelation. One commentator on this passage, on these verses, uh, uh, captions uh, the section where he discusses it, God's latest word, uh, as if uh, to give the suggestion, well, this is what God has said just recently, like sort of the latest edition, but something else is going to be coming further. Uh, Subsequently, but you see how that tones down. This is not God's latest word, but this is God's last, absolute, final word that has been spoken in the Son, Jesus Christ. And as the writer goes on to make clear, that will involve uh, chapter 2, verse 3, that will involve the revelation uh, that of the eye and ear witnesses, uh, of eye and ear witnesses, primarily the apostles, that results eventually in the New Testament. We can underline this point from what we were just singing earlier as we began this morning. That hymn that opens with the line, How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. And then you remember then how the third line, the rhetorical question goes, What more can he say to you than to you he has said to you who for, ref to, for refuge to Jesus have Fled. That's the point of the writer of the book of Hebrews. After God has spoken in his Son, after God has spoken in Christ, he has nothing more to say. That is God's final word and everything that will be involved in that revelation in Christ. I might just uh, observe this very quickly. This third factor, uh, that God's, uh, the matter of God's climactic speech in his son, that shows us while, that while the writer is thinking here primarily of God's verbal revelation, speaking in the, in the verbal sense, he also has in view revelation that is more than verbal. He also brings into view here uh, the point that verbal revelation is always focused on God's revelation of himself, his actual presence in what God is doing. What God is doing as creator and savior to accomplish the salvation of his people and the restoration of his creation. That presence of God in word and deed that culminates in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself is God's word, and you'll remember how that point is also made in John 1.1. Now, uh, that um, 
brings us then to our second point, and that is to relate what we have just been observing about Revelation, uh, relate that more uh, directly, specifically to the Bible. Uh, see, how does what we've been saying apply to the Bible? The umbrella statement is, is in Hebrews, as I was observing with you, has in view the actual history of Revelation, uh, the historical process. But what does that have to do with the Bible? And in, but in, in, in fact, the implications, there are implications here that fairly well apply to the Bible, both to the form of the Bible as well as its content. Why is that? Because the Bible's own production is part of the history of special revelation. We may think of our Bible as the record of the actual history of, of, of God's special revelation as that history unfolds. But as it is a record, it is itself a production, flows out of that history, and is properly itself the Bible, God's word. In our statement that we look at, the writer says that God spoke through prophets. Uh, and surely he is thinking then, you see, of what the prophets wrote as well as what they spoke. And those writings, at least some of those prophetic, what, what the prophets wrote, are contained in the Old Testament. Now, with uh, those observations, let's look, uh, as I have it there on the outline sheet for you, uh, as we have time to do, at 2 Timothy 316, 2 Timothy 316. A statement that is perhaps the most important and instructive statement in the Bible about itself. All scripture is God-breathed. Paul here is referring uh, concretely to the Old Testament, but by implication what he has to say will apply to anything that is scripture uh, to the Old Testament. Uh, Paul uses here a, a, what is a single word in Greek, uh, rendered God-breathed or sometime breathed out by God. It's a word that occurs only here in the Bible, uh, but despite the view of some, despite the position of uh, some are taking, that because this is a rare word, because it only occurs here, we can't really know what Paul meant by it. I think to the contrary, it's very clear what Paul means. What we have here, if you'll pardon just briefly a grammatical way of putting it, is a passive verbal adjective. It's an adjective. It tells us something about the Bible. It brings into view uh, an activity, but it views that activity uh, passively. And you see uh, what this verb is, uh, what this word affirmed the scripture, that scripture is God-breathed, uh, shows us is that we are told here something about, and something very important, about the origin of the Bible. Just to underline a point that Carl Truman was uh, making already last night, this verse does not tell us of an effect that the Bible has on us. It does not tell us that the Bible is an inspiring book. It does not have in view what happens to me as I read the Bible, although that may be true on other grounds, and as we'll see presently. It doesn't even tell us here what happened exactly in the human writers of Scripture. It doesn't tell us how they were inspired. We're informed here about the origin of the Bible, of the origin of the biblical documents, and that passive does bring into view an activity. Now, what is that activity? The activity of God, which you see is related particularly to the activity of the Spirit of God, an activity which the writer uh, describes here as God-breathing. We are told here that everything that belongs to Scripture is the result of of it's produced by this activity, this God-breathing activity. Now, plainly here, we can, I think, say further, this breathing activity has in view, in particular, the breathing that's associated with speaking. And the result of that speaking, 
the breath of God's speech is said to be scripture. So I think we can even put it fairly this way. The words of the Bible are, as it were, the distillate of the very breath of God as he spoke. Scripture, we are being told here, is God's word in the sense that the biblical documents originate with God. God is responsible, if I might put it, God is on the line, accountable for both the form and the content of the biblical documents. What they say and the words they that are used to say it are his own. Uh, inspiration then, as we sometimes put it, and when we use that word inspiration, uh, we should be thinking, remember again, not of the effect that the Bible has, but of its God-breathed out character. That inspiration is plenary and verbal. Plenary, that is fully, it, it extends to the whole of the Bible, not just the certain parts, and verbal. It extends down to the actual words, not just to the thoughts that the writers had, but the, to the way they are expressed. In other words, now, and we bring, this brings us to this very important uh, conclusion in all of the discussion and turmoil that's going on today about the, the debate about the doctrine of Scripture. Ultimately, God is truly the author of Scripture, as the Westminster Confession of Faith puts it, in chapter 1, section 4. Now, to focus as we are, and as this verse, 2 Timothy 3.16, teaches uh, on the origin of the Bible in the past, is, however, not simply to leave the Bible there in the past as a historical artifact, as a kind of dead letter. Because, you see, as God is its author... This author, God, is not speaking from the past as someone dead, like Shakespeare or some other human author from the past. The God who has spoken and breathed out Scripture in the past is the living God. So now, we can say Scripture is not only God-breathed, but it is also God-breathing. Or to put it better, just as it is and remains God-breathed, Scripture continues permanently. For us today, as for people in every time and place, it continues to be God-breathing. And as Paul says here, as God breathes, Scripture is for the church today and in every time until Jesus comes, totally profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So in this sense, Scripture is always not merely what God has said in the past, but what he is saying now, or as that is captured in uh, the expression in chapter section 10 of chapter 1 of the Westminster Confession, it's a matter of the today, the Holy Spirit speaking in scripture. By the way, if you've never had the opportunity of reading chapter 1 of the Westminster Confession, it's a full statement of scripture, uh, do that. Please. Uh, thirdly, uh, our umbrella statement in Hebrews reminds us of that God's speech, his, his self-revelation, utilizes human beings. Um, they're speaking and writing. Uh, and we should not hesitate to say, uh, so far as the Bible is concerned, it has genuine human authors. Moses, Isaiah, Paul, Peter, and so on. This raises the question, how then in Scripture do divine and human authorship relate? How is the origin of the... how? Uh, in the origin of the Bible, does the activity of God as its author function together with the activity of the various human authors? Uh, that's a question that has occupied the church almost from the beginning, uh, but especially in the last several centuries, 
uh, as there's been an increasing awareness of the unfolding history of Revelation, uh, that Revelation does come as a historical process, uh, and as that then involves the role of human writers uh, as genuine authors in that history, uh, this question has uh, been given greater attention, as a sh and it's surely a legitimate, a legitimate question, a one that the Bible itself poses for us, as uh, we'll presently see. But too often, as we get into this, uh, this issue, uh, this caution, too often uh, the result of this attention to the human authorship of the Bible has been an undue focus on the humanness of the Bible, a preoccupation with the historical circumstances and limitations of the human authors and what they wrote uh, such that God as their author, uh, if it's not denied, tends to become eclipsed and to fade into the background. And I think this has become an increasing problem in even evangelical circles and leads to uh, the situation that we have uh, there, that we've already been alerted to in this conference. Now, the question of the relationship between divine and human authorship, that is a complex one. It, it's one with difficult aspects, although uh, we shouldn't exaggerate those difficulties because, and, and, and as we approach this question, we should not lose sight of what is clear. The matters that I have already underlined for us about God as author. But as we address now, particularly the role of the human author, we can say that the human authors, I think as good a word as any, is that they are instruments, or employing a distinction that emerges uh, in uh, the Protestant and uh, the Reformed and Lutheran orthodoxy of the 17th century, well, it may be earlier, but at least it's there, uh, the human authors are secondary authors, used by God as the primary author. So that, I think that's a helpful distinction between primary and secondary authorship. Uh, we can see uh, that in uh, our Hebrew statement, in speaking to the fathers, God is the speaking subject, but you see he did that through the prophets by the prophets. And by the way, I should have already observed earlier probably, the reference here uh, to the prophets, uh, well, we'll use a, the technical term, is synecdochic. Uh, that means it's, it's a part for the whole. He's talking about the prophets, but surely what he has to say would apply to the other sections of the Old Testament. And how uh, the writer understands uh, this human instrumentality uh, what it includes for him by, uh, can be seen then uh, how he subsequently expresses himself. I'll just have to do this very quickly. Um, may, maybe you could note the verses and look more uh, carefully on your own if you wanted to. In chapter 4, verse 7, the writer is quoting from Psalm 95. And he says that that is what God is saying through David. But then at Chapter 3, verse 7, he uh, there also quotes the same material from Psalm 95, and there it's simply what the Holy Spirit says. In other words, uh, I think we can put it this way, for our writer, the Holy Spirit trumps David in the sense that what David says in Psalm 95 is more ultimately, finally, what the Holy Spirit says. Similarly, uh, later on in chapter 9, verse 8, uh, the Day of Atonement ritual, uh, both the actual ritual and the record of it that we have in Exodus and Leviticus is what the Holy Spirit indicates. Chapter 10, 50, uh, verse 15, the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah, where God uh, promises to put his law in the hearts of his people, no longer remembering our sins, the writer says, that is what the Holy Spirit says and bears witness to. And notice again here the present tenses in these statements. As the record of God's finished and complete revelation in the past, Scripture is never a dead letter. It is God Himself, its author, now, ever, living and active. 
as we may fairly apply uh, the words that the writer uses in chapter 4, verse 12. Now with that observed, let's, let me move uh, us on, and this would also be there on your, um, uh, on your outline sheet, uh, to, what the, uh, to what we find in 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. The passage was read to us earlier. Uh, this, I would suggest, is the most instructive single passage in Scripture on the question that we're concerned with. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now here in the context, Peter is looking at Old Testament prophecy. But what he has to say applies fairly, you see, to the entire Old Testament, not just to one section of it. And by extension, again, to anything that is Scripture as he is speaking of it here. The writer uh, makes his point by making it negatively and then positively. Notice, first of all, what he tells us Scripture is not. What Scripture is not, verses 20 and the beginning of verse 21. He says, literally, it is not of one's own interpretation. In other words, we're being told here that the scripture is not the result of, of some one human interpretive efforts. It's not a matter of human searching after the nature of reality, trying to unravel the mysteries of life. It's not a matter of the prophet's own religious insight or spiritual experience. And he makes that point again in verse, uh, beginning in verse 21, no prophecy was produced or came about by the will of man. Notice what's happening here. The origin of scripture is brought into view and it is specifically denied that the Bible owes its origin to human initiative, not even as that might be seen as a response to some divine encounter. Well, that's what Scripture is not. What is Scripture? What Scripture is? Look at the end of verse 20. First of all, it is from God. The source of Scripture is God. And that is by the contrast that the writer is involved in here. He is telling us here, when he says that Scripture comes from God, that it originates with his will, not human will. It's God's will that initiates and is decisive and controlling. And you see how this thought is very close, this thought of Peter is very close to the God-breathed out character of Scripture of Paul in Second Timothy. Now what's of particular interest here in this passage is we are... Uh, told further here something about how Scripture is from God. The writer says that took place, came from God, as men spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now what is noteworthy here is that this is the one place in Scripture where this verb to bear or to carry is used to describe the activity of the Holy Spirit. So, as our writer is using it here in content, in, in, the, in the context, it's not simply another way of saying that the writers were led by the Spirit. See, that's the privilege of every one of us as believers. Romans 8.13, as many as are uh, led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. All God's children are led by the Spirit. But what the writer has in view here goes beyond that. It's a stronger idea. Uh, it brings into view the origin of Scripture as the goal, and the writer's point is that the, uh, the Peter's point is not simply that the that the writers were led by the hand, as it were, but they were picked up, carried bodily, as it were, to that goal of the origin of Scripture. Uh, we can, I think, even put it this way, at the risk of a certain overstatement uh, that I'll, I'll try to clarify immediately, we can say that uh, what the writer is telling us here is that they were active 
in what they did, in what they actually spoke and wrote, the human authors, they were active as they were ultimately passive. That is, not that they were inactive, but as they were deeply dependent and receptive on God in what they did. In other words, the point here again is no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Now that's certainly not to say that they wrote and spoke against their wills or without uh, their wills uh, engaged. At least that, wasn't, that was usually the case. But the point here is that ultimately considered, their human wills do not count or come into consideration in the giving of God's word. Again, you can see how the old orthodox uh, distinction comes out here between God as the primary author and the human writers as secondary. Now, if the way I've been accenting it uh, seems to be overstating, although I think I'm, I've just been bringing to our attention the way in which the, the writer, of uh, for, Peter says it there in Second Peter, uh, but let me uh, ask you to consider now 1 Thessalonians 2.13. Again, a verse that was referred to last night briefly, I want to look at it in a... a a little more care now. Uh, Paul, if you will, overstates, in a way, to make a crucial point. As he's looking at the reception that his ministry, and particularly his, his bringing of God's word to them, uh, the, the positive reception it had there in Thessalonica, he puts it this way, when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but it, as it is really and truly the word of God. Here, Paul commends the Thessalonians for the way his preaching and teaching was received by them. Whether that was, we can say, oral, uh, as he was there present with them, or what he wrote to them. He said, you received it not as the word of men. See, there's uh, the overstatement, if you will. See, it was obviously Paul's. You pick up a letter of Paul, you can see it bears all the marks of his personality. Uh, you can see every indication that uh, someone is writing who is living within first century Mediterranean world uh, has uh, his background, his roots in Second Temple Judaism and so on. But he says, in a way he see, cancels all that out here. And he says, you received it not as the word of man, but for what it is. And then he uses a very, uh, um, uh, he doesn't say what it is, but what he's, he, and he uses a word for emphasis, what it is truly, what it is actually, the word of God. And you see that not but is telling us, ultimately considered, Paul's word is not his but God's. And it's hardly a gratuitous to add uh, to that uh, that Paul's teaching is God's word is to be taken not only in its content, but in its form. The idea isn't here that uh, God uh, gave Paul some, uh, some thoughts or ideas, some content to communicate about uh, himself, and then left it to Paul to say it in his own a weak and imperfect way. That would bring a, a, a disjunction into what Paul is thinking here that is quite contrary, uh, that Paul would quite find quite contrary. Um, well, I see I need to bring my um, um, remarks um, to a conclusion here, and I'm going to have to do a bit of editing and come to this conclusion. If you'll bear with me just... Uh, a little bit longer uh, with a view toward the morning coffee that's soon at hand. What I've been wanting to accent uh, this morning, uh, it, it, you can see, is this. What we need to know and believe about Scripture is that as the record of God's finished speaking, His revelation in the past, it's author is God. Its author is God in his entire truthfulness. The truthfulness 
the absolute reliability that can only characterize God. And it is, as it is the speaking of that God in the past, it is that God speaking today. It's the Holy Spirit speaking in the Scripture. And the Bible is that from first to last, from beginning to end. Let me just uh, uh, say this as well. What God says in the Bible, uh, the Holy Spirit speaking in Scripture, is not what we have to uncover and decide on for ourselves, only as we have uh, discounted, as it were, what the human authors have written. Uh, only as uh, we have taken into consider and consideration and, and sort of uh, factored out everything that is marked by their uh, personal limitations, uh, their bygone historical circumstances, their cultural conditioning, and so on. Now, you see, it's rather the opposite is the case. Just as what the human writers wrote in all of its full cultural, historical and cultural conditioning, uh, situatedness, setting, it is just as it is that that Scripture is God's Word and speaks today. Only as we approach Scripture with that confidence, that confidence that God is author, with the implications that I've tried to draw to our attention again this morning, uh, that we'll, con we'll continue to hear clearly and possess in the church for ourselves that central message of the Scripture, the gospel concerning Christ and God's will for our lives, and we'll also then be in a position to wrestle constructively with the sometimes difficult issues uh, of the meaning of Scripture and how it applies today. Uh, I'll close then with the quote that I have there for you on the sheet. Um, it's uh, from the Dutch Reformed theologian Herman Bovink, um, a marvelous discussion of Scripture in the first volume as Reformed Dogmatics, 100 pages plus that I commend to those of you who have particular interest here would want to invest the time in reading that. And as he brings his whole, con his whole discussion to a close, he cites Genesis 11.5 from the account of the Tower of Babel, the word, the verse particularly, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men had built. Uh, and he makes the point, as it's the, it's the, the suggestion here, uh, or it might be taken to suggest uh, that God really didn't really know what was happening, uh, where he was, and so he had to come down to the situation and, and, and discover for himself what was going on. And with that then, uh, Bobbing says this, this, what's said in Genesis 11.5, is said of the infinite and all-knowing God in a human way. This last comment, however, really applies to the whole Bible. It always speaks of the highest and holiest things, of eternal and invisible matters in a human way. Like Christ, it does not consider anything human alien to itself. But for that reason... It is a book for humanity and lasts till the end of the ages. It is old without ever becoming obsolete. It, is all, it always remains young and fresh. It is the language of life. The word of God endures forever. And that, uh, brothers and sisters, is ground for confidence. Full confidence. Thank you.